It's another episode of Meet the Author. Tonight, Memoir of a Black Christian Nationalist, Seeds of Liberation, on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. This episode is brought to you by Funwise Capital. Funwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals. Connect with Funwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Fly.funwise.com slash mind dog. Is everybody ready for the mind dog to make it to the show? Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. I'm being sent to the principal's office again. Not the first time for me. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking uh, to another author. Seems lately, almost every uh, episode we're having either talks about race or religion. Well, I think we're going to combine both tonight. <laughs> And maybe maybe we can move on uh, after after tonight's program and find some other topics to talk about. Uh, I should start by saying Merry Christmas and welcome to winter. I think um, in less than 24 hours, it will officially be winter. Sometime around, I believe, sunset tomorrow night, uh, winter kicks in here in the northern uh, hemisphere. So welcome to winter, folks. I hope it's a, a uh, mild one for wherever you are, and hope we get through it tonight. Uh, author Dr. Shelley McIntosh, new memoir, Memoir of a Black Christian Nationalist, Seeds of Liberation, describes her early life up in Detroit, where she lived through the 1967 rebellion, so a part of her neighborhood burned down to the ground, and then with the National Guard housed in her high school. Searching for a way to stop the injustice and rebuild her world, she joined the Shrine of the Black Madonna. Ladies and gentlemen, Please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome Dr. Shirley McIntosh to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Dr. McIntosh, welcome. Thank you so much, Matt. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, well, it's my pleasure to have you here and to learn from you, because that's what we're we're interested in around here. Now, uh, I'm not sure uh, I know what the Black Nationalist uh Black Christian National Church is is that, or is that is that the way it's said? Black Christian National Church is there a church called the Black Christian Nationalist Church? No, uh, okay. Black Christian Nationalism is the theology. Okay, and uh, the church is the shrines of the Black Madonna of gotcha. the Pan African 
Orthodox Christian Church. I know that's a long name, but it's again, Shrines of the Black Madonna and Black Christian Nationalism is the theology. Okay, so what's at the heart of it? This is uh, what's at the heart of it. So when we uh, speak about the Shrine of the Black Madonna, the um, theology of the church incorporates the historical uh, message and life of Jesus. And in this history and later and, and most recent DNA research, uh, it points to the mother of Jesus being black. And so I'm not the first one to say this. This has been stated by scholars for, for years. And I am just simply building upon that. So with her being black, it adds a whole new dimension to Christianity. Um, many of the images of the black Madonna and child are in European museums, uh, but the holiest church in Poland is called the Shrine of the Black Madonna. And the mother and Jesus, they're both depicted as that. So the again, the historical life of Jesus and the DNA research lately that points to the original Jews being African and Jesus was a Jew. So that makes him African too. Wow. That's pretty heavy. Now, uh, I have just yesterday, I saw a uh, reconstruction of what somebody claimed uh, Jesus would look like. And he didn't look like a black man. He didn't look like a white man. It was hard to, you know, we, there was, it was almost like somewhere uh, in between, I guess is the best way I could put it. But wh where did the DNA that w that was done, research was done on, where did that come from uh, in the first place? Okay. I've read some of it. And some of it has come from a PBS documentary. So there was DNA research done on the Jewish Caucasian rabbis. And what they found was a common Y haplotype chromosome. And so when that research was being done, they found that this chromosome was common in these rabbis. And there were people in Africa, the Igbo, the Limba people, and the Ethiopians who said that they were Jews also and come and do the research here. They did the DNA research there and came up with this same common Y chromosome haplotype, except there it was denser. Right. And so it's been spoken in synagogues now, Caucasian synagogues, mm -hmm. about this new DNA research and how it impacts the whole perception and the history of the Jewish people. Okay. How does it, how, what is the impact? That's, that's what, uh, because it's easy for, for people to say, especially for, for me who've been a, a sinner my whole life and not a church going guy. Uh, and, and somebody who, who sees race as um, something that divides us. In other words, you know, the fact, and it's hard to be colorblind. I mean, that's that's the goal, right? To be colorblind, not to notice somebody's black or white. But that's really impossible. But when you think about in terms of Jesus and what I believe his message is that we should all love each other and care for each other as brothers and sisters, uh, what difference does it make 
and I, I I understand from the black perspective that uh, they, if, if he's been misportrayed for two thousand years, you'd want to correct that. But what difference does it make at, at, at the end of the day uh, what he was if if the message is we are all uh, brothers and sisters under one God? At, at the end of the day, it was just not his color; it was his nature and his life and what he believed he was sent here for. So. If we look at the, the color, we are all creations of God, all of us, and we're all connected. We're just different. Right. And so there are Chinese, Caucasian, Japanese, they're black, they're Africans, but we still we still um, exist on the same planet. We still <laughs> we, we still breathe the same air. And now they're saying like, 96% of our DNA and every human being is about the same. Right. So the, the difference that it makes is that the history of Jesus was distorted as it went through the Roman Empire and then the Roman Catholic Church. I've read articles. I've, I've read um, Hugh Schoenfeld's books. I am a... a person who studies. I don't know everything, but I know a lot. Okay. So, so with um, with uh, the life of Jesus in Time Magazine years ago, it said that the further away Christianity got from Jerusalem, the more distorted it became. So if we look at uh, certain certain documents and certain books that have been written by others, like I said, I am not the first one to say this, but if we read those books, we are finding that Jesus' nature was that of a black Messiah. And why did he come? The people believed that, they, that God would send a Messiah to help deliver them from Roman oppression. So we have to look at the context and the history of what was happening during that time. Jesus's teachings, love ye one another, that was specific for his people. But it is also a spiritual teaching. Love ye one another. That's universal. Care for one another. Suffer the little children to come unto me. He was in the process of trying to change his people so that they could change the conditions they existed under, which at that time was Roman oppression. It makes a difference in terms of his color because yeah. just simply, Matt, I am African-American. And my mother would still want me to be identified as an African-American hundreds of years from now. Right. That's who I am. So I'm saying with Jesus, uh, with the adoption of, the, of Christianity by the Roman Empire, they began to change certain things. Not only did they change his color, but they changed the nature. So if we want to look at the universal teachings of Jesus, that can apply to all. During the time that Jesus was alive, he was trying to transform his people to help them to change so they can change their oppressive conditions. Right. Well, it, it's awfully confusing uh, from from the perspective of what's going on in America today, um, whether you whether people are uh, believers in Christ or not. Uh, I think most people would agree that uh, people are misusing uh, the message completely in, in terms of politics and all this stuff. And we are dealing with very 
you know, we've always had, you know, the for, back to the original sin, and I'm not talking about the original sin from the Bible, I'm talking about the original sin in America of slavery. We've always had racial tension and racial division all along our 250-year history. But it seems like at, at this point in time, Christianity, and I'm not saying your church, I'm saying Christianity in general, is being used by uh, people who are uh, further pushing that divide. And, and that. so the question in my mind is, we have people who are, uh, uh, I guess I'm going to come out and say it, we have people who are racist, very racist, using Christianity as a platform for their political beliefs and their party. Now, the question, uh, uh, the obvious question for a simpleton like me is, why would white people uh, worship a black man if they if they are <laughs> racist against black black people and try and then want to make that black portray that black man as a white man just to kind of make the at sooner or later the the hatred for <laughs> and the bigotry is going to come out in that so what what was behind this whole uh corruption and and mistelling of the story of for people who are using it a, in a racial way it's a little confusing don't you think <laughs> yes in a way you know, there's a there is a difference between the black experience and the white experience. Oh yeah, I know that. Okay, so with the black experience, as a child, my father uh, was a Baptist pastor. In most black households, there was a painting of a white Jesus. Right. We didn't question that. We just thought that that's what it was. But in my studies, I found out that that's not who he is. But the paintings that we've seen. At least I know some, uh, Michelangelo used his uncle as a model for Jesus in the 15th century. And that's uh, a lot of that image, those images of Jesus were in our households. So when I, I cannot tell you exactly why white people think that way, but I can tell you this, that this religion, that um, Christianity, in the time of Jesus, Christianity was a movement. It was not just a church. And if we read uh, in Acts, when the disciples received this power, which they call the Holy Spirit, and they started speaking where people could understand them, that was the beginning of the early Christian church. Jesus was not a Christian. He was a Jew. Right. The Christ came after his death. So if you take this, these people, African people, and they believe in this Messiah who's going to help deliver them from uh, oppression, and they fought, they, they fought against Roman oppression for a long time. So in the third, I believe, third century AD, around that time, uh, Emperor Constantine adopted Christianity. Right. And then that became the religion of the entire Roman Empire. And uh, those who didn't believe in it, they were persecuted when before Christians were persecuted. <laughs> so to me, Matt, it seems like it's this struggle for power and this aggressiveness. And in doing so, the image of Jesus and his nature and his life were reinterpreted. So it can be uh, digested by those uh, by the Romans. Right. Now, if 
if uh, Caucasians know today that they are worshiping a black Messiah, they wouldn't like it. And I know that they would not like it. No doubt. But, I agree. And it's been. But the thing is, there's a statement that your truth will set you free. <laughs> yeah. For a lot of people, the truth will not set them free. What they will do is um, embrace or armor themselves even more to not see the truth. And the truth is, is that he was a black Messiah who came to deliver Israel from Roman oppression. Right. So uh, I think if we flip the coin and say we gave black people a white Jesus who delivered them, but we cannot accept the black Jesus who was uh, historically and DNA points to that he was black. Uh, understood. Now, it gets confusing when we're talking about faith and faith and scientific proof. Sometimes, I, and I had this discussion on Saturday. I had a, a gentleman here who was using the nation of Israel to uh, to prove God's existence. And I, I'm like, why, why do we need proof of God's existence if uh, you know, if if it's built upon faith, faith is the idea of not needing that that proof, and uh, so the whole idea of of trying to prove things to people, and I think you're right. I mean, if if you're facing with the truth, a lot of people are not going to accept the truth anyway. So, uh, and I'm gonna I'll get back to the book because I, I, that's what we're here to talk about. Yes. But the idea of why. Um, why is proof necessary? What you know for, for a lot of people to know, uh, you know. And again, if you're going to present this truth, a lot of uh, white America is going to reject it, no matter what you say, no matter what proof you uh, show them of this. They're just going to reject it on an emotional level. Why? Why take this on? The point was not to convince white people to accept the Black Messiah. Okay. The point was to teach the historical Jesus and who he was in the shrines of the Black Madonna to allow us to help build for ourselves. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to move into this no, uh, question. Why did I join the shrines of the Black Madonna? And then I will may explain a little bit more about the shrines of the Black Madonna. In the first 18 years of my life, I experienced the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Reverend Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. I also experienced the 1967 Detroit Black Rebellion, which was the largest in the history of the United States of America. Mack Street, which was full of businesses and medical institutions and clothing. It was like a small business area that was completely burnt down. Then the uh, civil rights movement was televised and I saw children, men and women, um, attacked by dogs. I saw them beaten as they sat peacefully at the uh, counters, at the cafeteria counters. And I saw them being jailed. Then, again, as you said in my introduction, the city of Detroit was put on curfew. It was locked down. I remember. The Army and the National Guard were housed at my high school, Southeastern High School. We couldn't go to school. But we did hear them marching up and down the street in the morning and at night. As an 18-year-old, I asked myself, why? Why do these things exist? 
Why assassinations? Why uh, are my people protesting? I didn't have all the answers. So uh, one day my sister came home. She shopped at the Shrine of the Black Medina Cultural Center and bookstore. And she pulled out a book entitled The Black Messiah. So I asked her, can I read that? And she said, yes, I read it within three days. And then I told her, we need to go to that church. So in January of 1971, we crunched through the snow in Detroit, Michigan, in the middle of winter and attended the church. When I walked in, it was packed full of young people. It was the first time I saw the mural of the Black Madonna. It was uh, ceiling height. The energy in the church was a very high. And the message was that we are faced with injustice. We are faced with oppression. But we must change these things ourselves. We must build for ourselves. That was the message. And so the church is one of the institutions that Black people control at this point. The belief was that if we can change this theology, this, this mindset, and interpret the Bible as it's supposed to be interpreted, and look at the historical Jesus, then our religion, which is Black Christian nationalism, can help us to change ourselves and to build those things that our people need. Food, shelter, clothing, uh, nurseries, childcare, those type of, um, uh, I'm going to call safety nets. Right. And so um, I'm, I'm trying to answer the question in terms of the, the reason why I joined. Right. Okay. So uh, that began to uh, answer some questions for me. And in joining, we had to read at least 25 books. There was a book list. The uh, founder of the Shrines of the Black Madonna, Reverend Albert B. Clay Jr., he believed in discipline study, that we had to be educated. And so I read, I studied, I read, I studied, and it was just not his word. These are other scholars that I'm studying that talk about the early Christian church being a movement, that talk about Jesus, the Black Messiah, and talks about his mother, Mary. So that really created a whole belief system for us to work together to make some changes in the world in which we live. Hmm. Uh, The word nationalist has got me a little bit, because we have a... um... We have an image in our heads in today's political climate what that word nationalism means, and it's not a good thing. I mean, I associate it with um, very far right wing uh, authoritarian government type of stuff. The nationalist part, is that referring to the nation of Israel or is that America? (laughs) I'm going to answer that two ways. The first is when we say black Christians, Black people make up 86% of Christians in the United States of America. Wow, I did not know that. So that's why we call it Black Christians. We're Christians. I was a Christian before I joined the Shrines of the Black Madonna. So Black Christians are are really, um, in terms of percentage-wise, they're the ones that are Christians. Right. Okay. Nationalism means that we believe in independence. So America believes in independence. Right. 
The Japanese believe in nationalism. The Chinese believe in nationalism. Nothing is wrong with nationalism unless you are going to oppress and exploit a people. Right. So nationalism is something that is natural. You have a group of people, a race of people, they're working together for their welfare. They're working together to make their make sure their children have a future. They're working together to make sure the people are fed and clothed and housed and educated. That's what a nation is. And I'm glad you brought that point up about nationalism because I knew that people were going to look at that and say, oh, she's militant, socialist, Marxist, communist. It was none of that. Right. But yeah. I can I tell you what, if we we just uh, substitute the word white in that white Christian nationalist, you're looking at some really scary people. <laughs> and that's true, because because what they carry with them is a hatred for black people. Right. We don't care a hatred for white and people. Jews, by the way, not, not just black. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. And, and that mindset is is uh, very dangerous to uh, Jews, to African-Americans, to other people of color. That mindset is very dangerous. We do not propagate hating white people. We propagated loving each other enough to commit our time, our energy, our skills to creating nurseries, to creating children's institutions, to creating security for ourselves. Our message was love. Right. Now, the idea of um, Jesus being um, African um, is one that I have some confusion about as well because um, a couple of weeks ago I had um, and I, I've had a couple of people on talking and you mentioned Ethiopia earlier and this is where I'm going with this I uh, had a, a, a deacon from Ethiopia on we were talking about the civil war that goes on there is going on there and the part that that confuses me is Ethiopia is in Africa but most people in the western world don't see them as African, even though they're on the African continent. Anything uh, that is not sub-Saharan is not considered African in, in, in some people's minds. And I'm, I, the confusion is there. So when you say black, um, that generally means African. But Northern Africa is not considered black by so many people. This is what, what, what confuses me. And if I'm thinking if Jesus was indeed the skin color was black. But he was, if he was African at all, it had to be Northern African. It wasn't Sub-Saharan African. Am I correct in this or am I just confused? Okay. Help me. <laughs> I, no, I think that what we've been taught has been confusing. Right. And so uh, the question to me is why are we being taught about a, a, a sub-equatorial Africa and a Northern Africa? It was one Africa. Right. That's what so, I would think. Right. So the, the, the uh, reasons for doing this, that is to continually divide uh, African people. It's continually done to, uh, to confuse people. And, and it's a reason I can understand why people are confused. When I was in the, um, I must have been in college already. And Egypt was not associated with Africa. Right. They took it right off of Africa. And my question again, why? Because Egypt is in Africa. Right. So whoever is doing the interpretation are trying to create a specific um, level of knowledge for us. 
uh, or to create this whole, uh, I'm going to say facade or to promote um, a white superiority and, and white supremacy. Is it to, in some way to turn African Americans against other African Americans? Because when I was growing up, I remember Anwar Sadat, and he has the same, he's an Egyptian who has the same complexion as you, and people would tell me he's not a black man. And I was like, well, what, you know, that's a, a an odd place. If he was here, he would be treated like a black man because people people don't, when, especially in a racist society where, where things happen, people don't ask, let me see your uh, country of origin. They, they, they're judging on, on your skin in a, in, in a racist society. They're not, they're not asking you where you were born, where you came from. You look like a black man. You're a black man. You're treated like a black man in America. So that always confused me. And so I I would think it would confuse some, you know, black people as well. And it seems to me that it might have been instituted to turn black people on each other. Uh, do I, am, I, am I wrong in that? No, I think that you are correct with that. The, um, you're correct. I am the color of a of, of a lot of different people. Some people say my eyes are Asian or whatever. The the point is that I am a descendant of people who were who originated in Africa. And because of that, I have melanin in my skin. So I am African American. Right. And so it has been taught or this knowledge has been given to us to further divide us. Say, even during the time of uh, slavery, uh, there were light-skinned um, African-Americans, and then there were darker-skinned African-Americans. And somehow that divided us too. So we weren't in charge of the, the these concepts being perpetrated, nor were we in charge of the the, the, the books that were being printed and published for you and I to learn from. And so uh, many of us, black and whites, we've developed this whole misconception. And the purpose is to continually uh, perpetrate or maintain white power and white supremacy. Right. That is the bottom line. So even if we look back at um, slavery, some of the ships were named, one of the ships was named Jesus and another was named Mary. And then the institution of slavery, I've read, and I want, you know, the listening audience and TV audience to know that I studied a whole lot. Again, I don't know everything, but I know a lot. So with the institution of slavery, to justify why the Europeans would do that to another race of people, they declare black people to be inferior. Right. And that was their justification to enslave us. So they said the color of our skin was inferior, the shape of our noses, the way our hair was texturized, all of that they said was inferior. In fact, they were judging us, not from a God's point of view, but from a white superiority superiority point of view yeah, no, to justify no, the evil yeah. institution of slavery. 
No question. That's pure, that's, uh, pure evil. And, uh, and I know people will say that the Bible justifies uh, slavery in some sense. Uh, I don't see it, I, and I don't care what the text says. I, don't, I, I can't imagine uh, any righteous God uh, endorsing that as a uh, – and maybe, I, maybe I'm just – again, I, I open the show by saying I'm a sinner and, don't, and, and not really a churchgoer and don't know all this stuff, but I can't imagine a righteous God endorsing uh, slavery no matter what the parameters are in any way. All, right. the, all this uh, ta- uh, speaks to the idea of the church's role in reforming – society in some way and in america we have this idea of separation of church and state i think it's being abused mostly by white christian nationalists in this country that idea of using the church as a pulpit in politics and i think if they're going to do that they should go ahead and tax the churches but with that in mind what is the role of of the uh, of your church the church of the black madonna um what is the role of that in policy change in government and in, in all as far as you as you said? Okay, that's a pretty pretty loaded question, but I'm going to try to answer it okay. as specifically as possible. I do want to kind of back up to what you said about a God that does not like slavery. Right. So when we speak of that particular type of God, and I agree with you, that's an anthropomorphic concept of God, that God is a a, a big guy sitting off in the clouds somewhere <laughs> yeah. and, and then and then listening to every one of our prayers and determining whether we're going to get to heaven or not in the shrines of the Black Madonna. That was not our concept of God. Beautiful. Our concept, it. our concept of God is that God is cosmic energy and creative intelligence and that God is in everywhere, in everything and in every human being. So how do how do we get to that? So. Um, I would say it just like this. This is what helps me to get to that. There was a time that I was not here on earth at all. I was conceived. We all were conceived miraculously in our mother's womb. There was no hand of man, no hand of woman who told those cells to divide, who told them to make the brain, the heart, the skeleton, the liver. No no human being laid their hands on that. All this magic took place so that within nine months, there was a full human being, you and me, (laughs) a full human being. We need the earth to live. We breathe in the air that we don't see, but it feeds every single cell. We must drink the water because our bodies are 87% of water. So whatever is in that water, the body needs. So the earth will rotate. The crops will rotate. Orange trees know to produce more orange trees. There's a higher intelligence, cosmic energy and creative intelligence. That is what we believe about God. I I will say this. Thank God for that definition. Uh, because we can't have a discussion about God until we can define it. And I, I asked that question so many times. I've asked people on the other day when a gentleman was on who was going to prove the existence of God. It's first you have to um, define God. And when you define God in terms of an old man in the, in the clouds with a big white beard, white guy, not, you know, a white guy 
So he's both male and white uh, sitting in the clouds. That's going to turn a lot of people off. And this is why atheism is growing, because if you're going to stick to that strict uh, definition, you're going to tell signal to a lot of people that that can't be true. I mean, that's a fairy tale. You're, you're, so thank you for that. Anyway, uh, so but with regards to the role of the church now in uh because we are still have so much racial division, anger, and you, you, I don't have to tell you. I mean, there's riots in the streets, and and still, uh, you know, black mothers have to worry about their their teenage sons getting shot by police officers when white women don't necessarily have that same fear of their, about their their sons. So, how do we address the problems that are facing America, and that, and specifically, how does the church do that without doing what the white national white christian nationalist churches which is misusing the pulpit right now okay and and that's a good question because that's one of the points that i wanted to uh discuss in terms of the black church uh the black church has always been instrumental in bringing black people together it was our sanctuary uh even years ago uh black churches would not only have church service but they would set up food pantries and education for people. They would even set up uh, literacy classes because uh, for a while literacy was against the law to teach, to teach black people to read was against the law. They set up uh, different, uh, I'm going to call them institutions. They set up these institutions to take care of people. So the black church has always done that. The problem with the theology of the church was that it was based just on my salvation and that life will be better after death and I will go to heaven. I'm either going to go to heaven or I'm going to go to hell. But life is supposed to be celebrated while we are still in the physical realm. Amen. Amen. Right. (laughs) It's supposed to be celebrated while we are still alive. So that theology, which... In, our, in, the, in the shrines of the Black McDonald, we called it a slave theology. It disempowered us. We're looking for someone else to deliver us who is a white Jesus and the same race as the white oppressor and then the same race as God. That is psychological damage. Yeah. And so um, the theology of the Black church in a sense, disempowered uh, uh, Black people in terms of coming together and building for ourselves. So the Shrines of the Black Madonna, when it says Black Christian nationalism, the point was to change that theology, to relate it more to the historical Jesus and his life, and to understand that Jesus was fighting the same battle that we're fighting today, oppression, exploitation, injustice. But how do we fight that? Do we fight that by just marching all the time, even though protests are good? No, we fight it by uniting our skills, our energy, our intelligence, and we build for ourselves. For example, you have a health system here in America, and sometimes it's, it's really good and sometimes it's for profit. We, we know that. Everybody should have health care. I agree. Everybody. Uh, uh, but we have legislators who may think a different way and 
health industries who make money off of people being sick. In the shrines of the Black Madonna, we believe that we were supposed to build these type of institutions, build our own healthcare system. Uh, again, build our own nurseries where we can educate our children. Uh, build a process where we ourselves can be changed because we know there's black on black crime too. There's, there is a, a black on black um, uh, violence against each other. So develop a process where we can be changed ourselves in order to change these conditions. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, and I, I agree with uh, everything you said, especially this part about, um, I think we spend too much time thinking about the afterlife and, and all this stuff. And, and if there is a God, no matter what form that might take in any belief system, I think the best way to serve that 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 entity is by being kind and and and, and gentle with each other. <laughs> but no. uh, in this lifetime, uh, rather than you know spending all our time worrying about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and judgment and all that stuff, uh, but the idea of responsibility that you're talking about in building for yourself. Uh, there are people within the black community in America, especially if they happen to fall on a certain political spectrum, who are of, will disagree with you on that. So uh, in, in uniting black people to uh, see the world uh, your way is a difficult challenge. Uh, and black Americans to see, the, to agree with you on, on this, you know, on the large scale is, is a bit of a challenge, is it not? Uh for some, it is. For um, maybe younger people, it may not. I want to make a point that uh, when I joined the Shrines of the Black Madonna, I was 21 years ago, 21 years old. I was a youngster. Uh, and it's been, I was there for over 30 years. And so the, um, the objective was for uh, Black people to, 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 not only network, but be able to supply certain food products and clothing and services that we need. For example, there are Black farmers now. There are urban farms, too, run by Black people. And they set them up in places where uh, what they call a food desert before, where we didn't, those communities didn't have access to fresh vegetables and fruit. You have people doing that. And you do have uh, churches that have built housing for people. When we when we speak about Black people doing this within America, we're not talking about separation. We're talking about building self-sustaining communities within a nation. Right. So it's like the Jewish people, their communities, they build those communities. They send their children to, to uh, the Jewish schools and they, they network and they uh, work together uh, for the welfare of their people. The Chaldeans do the same thing, a nation within a nation. And that is what the um, we did in the Shrines of the Black Madonna. It Again, the time wasn't spent on um, debating and the time wasn't spent on protesting. The time was spent in developing children's institutions, which I was a director of for 21 years. The time was spent on how do we transform ourselves so that we can sustain this 
this uh, mission to continually build a better world, to build a future for our children. So even though some people may disagree with this, I would have to say that we did it. And it's a prototype. And the teachings, to me, are not only relevant for the Black church, the teachings are relevant for the world. Right. Who who did you write this book for? Is it for young people? Is it for uh, evangelicals? Who who's who's the audience for this book? My first audience was the the black church, and then also the uh, for for black Christian nationalists, our children whom we raised in the church, for uh, current black Christian nationalists, former black Christian nationalists, for at, for universities also. Because I believe that what we did, that needs to be known. Uh, some people say, well, I've never heard of the Shrines of the Black Madonna. I even had one colleague said, I lived two blocks away, but I didn't know you all had done all of that. So this story needs to be told. I dedicated 30 years of my life to it because I believed in it. And I saw what we could do when we put our hearts, our minds, and our souls to it. Gotcha. Now it's called a memoir, so I'm <clears throat> I'm imagining again for the audience out there. I, I I fessed up to this before we even went on the air. I mm -hmm. have not read the book, but I'm assuming it's a collection of short stories. Uh, is there uh, an overall narrative, or is it just like uh, what I just mentioned, just a collection of short stories from your life? Again, that's a good question because um, normally when you hear the word memoir, you hear maybe someone who was an alcoholic and what they did to, <laughs> <laughs> what they did to recover or someone who may have gone been incarcerated and what they did to recover that's not what this is the memoir of a black christian nationalist my stories my life are interwoven into the doctrines and the teachings of the church because that's what i was uh, for 30 years right so i i tell the story of how I joined and which I shared with you. And then I share the stories of um, the different uh, organizations or ministries that were built within the shrine. I share the doctrines and the philosophy. All that is interwoven. And I would have to say that uh, I, I I did a pretty, a pretty good job doing that. So the personal stories are interwoven with the history and the evolution of the shrines. Right. Of black Very cool. This isn't your first book, right? You've written, you've published uh, books before this. There's one uh -huh. like a principal story or something, right? Yeah, this is yeah. my fifth book. Fifth book, okay. Yes. So um, the first book is called Genesis to the Recreation of Black People. As an author, as an author, I place my real life experiences in all of these books. Right. So that is one book. I was the director of a children's institute for 21 years within the Shrines of the Black Madonna, and it was called Imtoto House. So I wrote a book about that. Uh, it was based on African communalism and the Israeli kibbutzim system, where we wanted to create a different generation, a generation that was better than us. Right. Now, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I don't mean to interrupt that's that uh, second book in Total House. Okay. And then I, I was a principal of an elementary school. And so I wrote again, 
my experiences as a principal in diary form. And then I did a second edition of that book, and it's called A Principal's Tale, um, A Self-Determined Leader. Gotcha. Yes. I okay. called it A Principal's Tale because I wanted, I wanted people to pick it up. It just didn't have to be for educators. I wanted it for everyone. It would scare me away because I got called to the principal's office too many oh. times. <laughs> um, I, I had a lady on this morning, uh, on this afternoon, who was talking about... Um, her story, which is about uh, the same period of time as 1967, 1968, when we were dealing with the efforts to desegregate um, and integrate New York City schools and all that she went through and, and, and the challenges that were with all that stuff. So it's one of those days where it all kind of ties into to each other. Um, you sound, and I don't want to make an assumption here, but you sound incredibly optimistic. Am I correct in that? And if so, how do you maintain that optimism with a, a world that we're seeing? Again, from my perspective and for 60 years on this planet, 60 plus years on this planet, doesn't feel like we've made a whole lot of progress in, um, you know, improving the lives of black people in America. Uh, and so if you are optimistic, how do you maintain that in the face of all that we're looking at in America today? Uh, without hope, I might as well die. <laughs> I just might as well call. No, yeah, I hear yeah. that. You have to get up in, every day and ho have hope in your heart without a doubt, right? Yes, I have hope also because of the experiences I've had in the shrines of the Black Madonna. I've, I, uh, my hope is built upon what we did. So, so the, the that um, to me points to what did we do, and what do I want people uh, to leave with? So, uh, at the shrines of the Black Madonna, we didn't just preach; we acted. So, we purchased buildings, and we transform those buildings into nurseries, into children's institutes, uh, where we taught our children reading, writing, math, and computer skills. Our children read before they went to kindergarten. All of the children graduated from high school. Um, we, we, we changed those buildings into communal dining halls where people could come and eat and get a, a healthy meal. We changed those buildings into residence halls where people could live and, and learn how to live together without violence, without debt, without uh, greed, to live in a harmonious and happy and safe environment. Uh, we turned those buildings into um, meditation centers where we could experience spiritual growth. And so because I was a part of this, of making this happen. And because I work with people who were doing the same thing, that's what gives me hope. So we had a prototype, which I dedicated 30 years of my life to. And this prototype, I believe, is still relevant to Black people today, but also relevant to the world. Right. Well, I, I applaud you for, for being proactive and trying to change the world for the better. I think too many people are apathetic today and, and just accept the world as it is. Um, I, I guess the, la the I, what I want to kind of touch base on here is, um, before I let you go, is that you mentioned a very high percentage, I think you said 86% of Christians are, are Black people. Now, uh, 
I think I I never heard of your church before tonight, and I'll be honest about that. But I, I my and I said up front that I'm not a church going guy. But when I go to church with my wife to her church, it there's it is predominantly black, but the pastor's white, and they still are under this uh, praising and praying to a white Jesus or pictures of a white Jesus on the cross and and all this stuff. So how how um prevalent is is your church in america right now and is there a divide north and south or or regionally with with your church as opposed to you know the south and southern baptist church and all that kind of stuff is there a divide regionally uh among black churches and black christians i'm going to try to remember that question see uh the pew research studies uh indicated that there were 86 percent of black people who identified themselves as Christians. And that was even more than white people. Wow. Okay. Then in terms of the divide, there is a theological and philosophical divide. And that uh, divide is something that we've already talked about is the difference in theology. Right. So my uh, premise has been this, this one church over here, black church, they say that sin is drinking alcohol. This black church over here says that wearing a short skirt is a sin. And then this church over here is saying that um, dancing and listening to secular music is a sin. That divides us. Right. If there was one overarching umbrella based on the life of Jesus in Luke fourth chapter, when he says he has come to free the oppressed, then that should be the overwhelming uh, thing to, to unify us. Right. So to answer your question, yes, there is a divide because of a belief system and because of philosophy and theology. And you're looking to bridge that divide. I am looking for people who are like-minded okay. and who's able to accept or study as I have about uh, the historical life of Jesus. I am not really trying to, um, to debate with anyone or am I trying to um, debate or justify or, or condemn anyone. That is okay. not my purpose. My purpose is for us to see the truth. Okay. A better world for me would be a better world for black people, a better world for Japanese, Chinese, a better world for Caucasians, because across the world, we are suffering. There are white people suffering here in America. They don't quite, some of them don't quite know why. They, they blame black people for it, right? Blame a lot of people. Blame a lot of things, <laughs> right? But um, we need to look at the system in which we live in. I agree, and be able to analyze it and see who is really exploiting who, who's really oppressing who. There's no need for poverty. There's no need for homelessness, and there's no need for uh, all these sicknesses that prevail. If the leaders of the world or governors would put people first uh, and putting people first 
to me, is the highest expression of being close to God. Amen to that. That I couldn't agree more. And uh, just to uh, just for a happy note, there on on the show um, Saturday, where the gentleman was trying to prove the existence of God through the nation of Israel and using the Bible to do that, we went around and around, and he he was losing his temper with me just for asking questions and wanting to understand his position a little better, and. Uh, the end of the show, though, after he left, there was a gentleman who uh, chimed in in the chat room and said uh, that God had abandoned him. There is no God because uh, he, he was in a very bad way. And a bunch of atheists <laughs> in the room uh, chipped in money to help him get his medications and get some food and all that stuff. And, I, and my my takeaway from that was like whether no matter what you believe in, I mean, that's what it's really all about. It's about people caring for people and doing the right thing and understanding that uh, reaching out your heart and being a human, a good human first is more important than arguing about what people believe and stuff. So that's, that's my happy ending for that, for that whole discussion. Well, again, you, you hit it on point, Matt, because we are born with a good nature. Right. Uh, Christianity, distorted Christianity says we are born in sin. I don't believe that. We are born with a good nature for the most part. We are born by a miraculous event that took place at our conception and at our birth. And when people care for each other, when they're kind to each other, when they want to do for another person, that is the highest expression of the nature of God. So the reason why I say that is because the earth gives us everything we need. And I've, in my self-awareness, I realized that before 19, I'm I'm, I'm telling my age now. Yeah, you don't have to do that. (laughs) He just come up with it. it. 1980. (laughs) Okay. I, I wasn't here on earth. And then I am very keenly aware that I'm going to disappear at death. So then who are we? Who am I? What is this body? How does it know to do what it needs to do? Those are the questions we need to ask. And in doing that, we become more aware of who we really are. We become more aware of our spiritual selves. And now we know that God is just not off in the clouds somewhere. God is within us and God is among us in this cosmic energy and creative intelligence. And how can I speak on that? Because I've experienced it. Well, I've experienced I, I, it. I appreciate you bringing that message here. And I have to say, I'm, I'm not a black man. I'm a white man. But that that uh, the notion that you're, you're talking about, the ideas you're talking about resonate with me a lot more than the traditional uh, Christian church that, that I was brought up in. And uh, I was brought up in a Catholic church, but uh, since then been more exposed to uh, born-again Christian, non-denominational Christian Christianity. And uh, I, I resonate a lot more with the message that you're bringing. So thank you for that. I wish you uh, great success with the book. The book is, again, it's called uh, Memoir of a Black Christian Nationalist, Seeds of Liberation. It's by Dr. Shelley McIntosh, and you can find it, uh, you can order it now from website at shellymackintosh.com there is a link in the description to make it nice and easy for you i hope you'll check it out i hope you uh will think about the, what we talked about here tonight.
tonight and love to hear from you. Info at mindogtv.com. Dr. McIntosh, it's been my pleasure. Uh, thank thank you, you for spending this hour with me. And uh, I feel like I learned a little something here today. So if I did, other people. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. And you know, after, after you read it, give me a call. <laughs> I, I, I will. And and maybe we'll have you back again after I after I read the book and we can talk about it a little. I, I would ago. love to come back. And okay. I, I, I am your uh, your African-American sister. Okay. That's what it is. We're all connected. <laughs> well, well, Merry Christmas, my sister. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Bye Thank you. Now. Okay, bye. bye-bye. Dr. Shelley McIntosh, folks, again, uh, lot to think about there, but that the whole idea of God, our God that lives within us is a lot, a lot easier for me to um, resonate with than the, the whole idea. And I've been, if you listen to the program, you know. Um, so I appreciate this conversation. I hope you did too. And please do write to me at info at minddogtv.com. Let me know what you think about this. Uh, tomorrow morning, Coffee with the Dog, 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, Brett Erickson will be joining me. Uh, he's going to talk about politics. We're going to talk because uh, Brett posed an interesting question on one of the social media platforms a couple of days ago. And I, uh, I said, you know, I think I, I might be able to answer this question, but not in the character form, uh, character limit on social media. So uh, why don't we have this discussion on air? So he said, sure, that sounds like fun. And so he'll be joining me around the 10 o'clock hour tomorrow on Coffee with the Dog. So I hope you'll join me then. Till then, I'm Matt Napple for the Mind Dog TV podcast. Thanks for coming. Have a great rest of your night. Bye for now.
Listen to me now. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me now. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me now. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me now.